Um, I hope that you, uh, most of you anyway, were able to see the introduction video that I did uh, regarding this series as we got started just laying some of the groundwork and the foundation uh, for our series, Doctrine for the Day-to-Day. That's what we're starting today. And um, as I said in that video, and, and feel free to go back and watch it even if you haven't seen it up to this point, I think it would still be helpful. Um, but the reason I've called it Doctrine for the Day-to-Day is because sometimes we have a tendency to view doctrine and theology as this far-off thing that, that just we can't reach unless we have a certain level of credential, you know, that it's something that's only for um, the professional theologian or the scholar or the pastor. Uh, but that's not true at all. Biblical theology is something that should be known and, and studied and, most importantly, applied by every single believer in Christ. doesn't matter what level of ed- education that you might have doesn't matter where you are uh, in, in your walk with the Lord, how many years you've been saved. Every single believer in Christ can and should know biblical theology, and then we should all be applying that to everyday life. It's not something that should just kind of sit on the shelf in these big, thick, dusty books. Theology is meant to inform our daily living as followers of Christ. And so our goal in this series is going to, be, is going to um, be talking about and considering very specific aspects of biblical theology, but not just in, a, in an intellectual way, not just to know, you know these, these terms and the definitions. Rather, it's so that we will we'll see more of God as we talk about these things. We'll see more of ourselves and we'll seek to apply the beauty and the richness and the power of what we're studying. That's going to be our goal. It's, it's a, a very practical purpose, this series. So that's um, kind of the, the reason behind uh, this series. And we're going to be talking about a lot of ologies in this series. And the first aspect that I want us to dive into together today uh, is the area of paterology, paterology, and that's the study of God the Father. And I didn't just make that word up, paterology, that's not just from me, okay, that comes from uh, two Greek words, pater for father, and logos, which is the word, thought, reason, okay, so you put them together and it's the study of God the Father, and so that's, that's our first area of focus as we jump into this series, the study of God, the Father, paterology. And the primary way, primary way that God is revealed to us is by His Word, through His Word. It's the primary source of divine revelation. And right away in God's Word, we see God in action. We see Him doing something that only He can do. We see Him creating. We see Him creating everything. Genesis 1.1 is something that just about everybody knows, at least somewhat. In the beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And that's, that's everything. And we know that that doesn't mean that's the start of God, because God was already there before the beginning. So it's really when the beginning began, God, who was already there, started creating and, and bringing everything into being. And that, that statement, 
God created. There's actually a lot wrapped up in there. Um, This act of creation and that process, it wasn't something that just God the Father was involved with. Uh, what we're going to see throughout the, at least the, especially the first half of this series, as we talk about God the Father and next week God the Son, Jesus, and then God the Holy Spirit, um, something that's going to come out and overlap throughout each aspect of those studies is that the Godhead, the three-in-one, the Trinity, also something I touched on in that introduction video, has always been involved together. They've always been in harmony. The members of the Trinity have always been in harmony in all that they do. And there's, there's a pattern there. And it's right away on display in creation. God the Father willed and purposed creation. God the Son carried out that purpose and did the actual work of creating. And then God the Holy Spirit applies and distributes that work. And He also applies His power to that. And the same is true of salvation. So the Trinity is involved in creation, and the Trinity is involved in salvation, rescuing and redeeming fallen man. Uh, God the Father willed and purposed the plan of redemption. God the Son carried out that plan of redemption. The Holy Spirit then applies the salvation that Jesus provided. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Just a beautiful picture of harmony and unity. That's how the Trinity works. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. That really involves all three members of the one God, the one divine being. But today, with it being paterology that we're looking at, we are going to focus specifically directly on the person of God the Father, the first person of the Godhead of the Trinity. So what I want you to to understand as we begin here is that the Father, God the Father, was the author of creation. He purposed it. He willed it. He was the author of creation, and He still rules over every part of it. He, He was the author of it all, and He still rules over every single part of creation. Psalm 33, 8-11. I want to draw your attention there. Look at that with me. Psalm 33, verses 8-11. through 11. In verse 8 of Psalm 33 says this, Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Why should all the world stand in awe of Him? Why should the whole earth fear the Lord? Verse 9 tells us, For He spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. Now, you and I don't know anybody else who could do anything like that. That's something that's only true of God. He spoke, and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. He, he didn't need anything else. He created out of nothing everything. He didn't need any other assistance or any other agent. He didn't need some already established material. He did it all. He did it all. 
He purposed it, he willed it, he spoke it, and it came into being through the action and the agency of his Son and through the application of power by the Holy Spirit. God is so incredibly powerful, he is beyond comprehension. There's no way we can fathom the depths of his power and his ability. He is above all else, the author of all creation. But he didn't just author creation and then step back, take his hands off of it, as it were, just let it go, do its own thing, and be removed. Uh, there's actually a, a very common um, theory that unfortunately many, many people, even, even Christians, subscribe to, uh, and that's something called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. And that's that God um, used or employed the evolutionary process to do the creating, to bring about everything. Uh, the other, another theory that's much older is uh, the theory of deism, and that, that's the view that God kind of started the ball rolling, and then he just stepped away and let it do its own thing, and it was going to be whatever it was going to be, and he wasn't involved beyond creation. Both of those things are absolutely untrue. God didn't use any other thing to create all of the universe. He didn't need to. He did it all by Himself. All for His own glory. His own pow- by His own power and for His own purpose. And He didn't take His hands off at that point either. He remained directly involved. I want to uh, draw your attention to the following verses in this passage. Verses 10 and 11. So he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. There's the creation by God. Then verse 10 says this, The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. See, church, God is not some distant designer. He didn't just design the world and author the creation of the universe and then step back and was no longer involved. No, he's he's an involved sovereign over what he created. And that is incredibly important for us to remember. And it should be incredibly encouraging to all of us, especially as we see what goes on around us in our world today and in our age, by God being constantly involved, directly involved, completely in control of all of it, what that tells us then and and what we can draw encouragement from is the fact that no matter how out of control this world seems, our Father's sovereignty over all of those things remains constant. And isn't that good news to to know and to remember? Because, man, just looking around, you don't have to look very far. I think we could all come away with the feeling that our world, life as we know it, is just totally out of control. I mean, that's how it seems, right? That's how it feels. Like everything's just spiraling into chaos. But I can tell you with all certainty from personal experience and from experience in the Word, 
seeing the tapestry that's woven throughout the ages, that no matter how out of control this world seems or gets, our Father's sovereignty remains constant. And that's where our hope comes from. That's where we can rest. That's where we can draw strength and courage and keep going forward no matter what. Um, that our, our God is not just the creator, not just the author of creation, but rather he is also directly involved as sovereign over all of it, over every aspect, every detail. Um, a good way of summing that up is from our brother Glenn Talent. He says something from time to time, and I love it when he says it. It's always a good reminder. Glenn likes to say, speaking of the world and things and conditions and circumstances, he says, things are going wrong exactly right. Did I get that right, Glenn? Okay, I thought I did. I love what, what, when he says that because he's saying the same thing here. He's saying, you know, you look around and you see things spiraling out of control and our tendency is to get so discouraged and so depressed and, and say, well, what's the point of going forward? What's the point of doing anything? Nothing's going to come out right. Nothing works right. Everything's a mess. I mean, we can have a very fatalistic view of life if we're not careful. Super easy to do, even as Christians. But what Glenn, when he, when he says that, what he's pointing to is the fact that God has it all under control. And even the things that appear or seem to us in our limited, finite understanding, the things that appear and seem and feel to be going very, very badly, even those things God is using and orchestrating and ordering for His own purpose. And friends, His purpose, God's purpose, is always perfect. Always. So things might be going wrong according to our standard or how we see things or in our perspective. We might say, oh, things are going terribly wrong. And if so, then that means they're going wrong exactly right. Right, Glenn? I'm so glad for that. I'm so thankful for that. And I I need to keep remembering that myself. And I believe you do too. And we need to be reminding each other of that. That God's got this. God's got us. He's got this world. Um, he's got the whole world in His hands. Still. Still. And always. Always. It's all going according to His perfect plan and His timing. Now, on a more personal note, um, we understand you know, God created the heavens and the earth, the universe, the stars, all of those things. Um, but there's something wonderfully personal about God being the author of creation. And I want to draw your attention to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verses 14 through 16. We're going to see the, the personal aspect of the creation that our God authored and that He continues to rule over directly as sovereign. Psalm 139, 14 through 16. The psalmist says, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made, fashioned, formed, designed. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in 
in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Astounding. See, this shows us the creation that God authored, His creative power, and it shows us His sovereignty all at the same time. Because it says that I've been remarkably, we, you and I, we've been remarkably and wondrously made. There's, there's the creation aspect of that. Um, and then you see that all of our days, the, the days of our life, from start to finish, were written in His book, planned out, thought out, planned directly, personally, before a single one of them began. Even before we drew breath, God, our Creator, also as sovereign, completely mapped out our life. Every detail from start to finish. And what that tells us, what that shows us, is that every single life matters and it's precious. And that means it actually doesn't matter how a life comes into this world, how a life is brought to life, what the circumstances are behind it, whether it's good or bad, wonderful or tragic, it doesn't matter. Every life that comes to life in this life matters and is precious. No person is an accident. No person is an accident. We've all been created on purpose and for a purpose. And we've been given purpose. And that purpose ultimately is for His purpose. For our Creator's purpose. For our Sovereign's purpose. All life was not accidental or random. It was created. It it was brought forth on purpose, for a purpose, and it was given purpose. And that's something that Satan, our enemy, doesn't want us to believe, and he doesn't want people to know. He wants people to think that they are an accident, or that people can be an accident, that it's just something random, that there isn't really any such thing as purpose, that no one's life really matters. And if he could convince us of that, then He can keep us from seeking the purpose that God has for every life that comes about. He wants us to think that life and, and all the things around us are just random and that nothing else really, nothing matters at all, so we can just live however we want. We can just pursue whatever we want because it's all empty. It's all pointless. But that's not the case at all. All life is precious and valued by the author of it, And it all has purpose, and that purpose is ultimately, and above all other things, for His purpose to be lived out through that life. Here's the other thing uh, about our Father uh, that we, we need to understand. We've talked about His being Creator, the author of creation. We've talked about Him being the sovereign over all that creation, still, now, to this day, every aspect under His control. But we also need to understand 
this about our great Father, God the Father. And that's that the Father hates sin with a passion. And He can't allow it to be in His presence. God created the heavens and the earth. He created man, Adam and Eve. And I think most of us, if not all of us, understand that man and woman, Adam and Eve, humanity, started off on a really good foot. They started off perfect, in complete perfection. No such thing as sin. But that didn't last very long. And through their own choice, by their own free will, uh, falling into the trap of Satan, the great deceiver, they chose rebellion and they chose sin. And sin then entered not just their experience, not just their lives, but sin entered all of humanity then because of their sin, passed down through every single human being. So we've, we, we've then inherited sin, we were born into sin, and then we, like Adam and Eve, we choose it on our own. So we are sinful by birth and sinful by choice and action. But our, our God, our great Creator, our great Sovereign, our Father God, hates sin with a passion. And He can't allow it in His presence for even a second. That's one reason Adam and Eve had to be expelled from the garden. And so there's our problem. God created mankind. God loves mankind. God sovereignly directs and rules over mankind. But God hates the sin that saturates mankind. And can't allow it and us as sinners to be in His presence at all. And no, no matter of trying harder or doing better or keeping rules and regulations would ever, ever be enough to solve that dilemma and to solve that problem. Psalm 5.4 tells us this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. Evil cannot dwell with you. So there's a problem. There's a problem. Psalm 5.4 makes it pretty clear. God is not a God who delights or entertains or can tolerate wickedness and evil cannot dwell with Him. And yet we need Him more than the breath in our lungs. And He's sovereign over all that we do and longs to restore the relationship that sin broke and we need that relationship restored, what in the world are we going to do? What, what's the answer? What's the hope? It's certainly not within us as fallen, broken, sinful creatures. It's certainly not to be found in anyone else. It's not going to be found in any system. The answer and the remedy is found only in God. And it comes in the person and the work of His Son, Jesus. And we're going to talk about that next week. So, the dilemma that came about right at the beginning, the problem that no person can solve in and of themselves, well, that, that's something that God alone could solve, and He did. And again, that's going to be our focus going forward. 
But for now, I want, I want you to understand just how truly passionate God's hatred of sin is. He hates it. He can't tolerate it at all. And so much so that he was willing to send his son, like I said, we're going to talk about that in more detail next week, to take care of what needed to be taken care of. He was willing for his own son to be the sacrifice necessary to restore us to his fellowship and and right relationship with him. That's how much he hated it, that he was willing to do that. And what that means for us who have accepted that gift of salvation in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, for those of us who who have turned to Jesus and looked to his cross and said, yes, you, you are the only Savior. You are my only hope. I give you my life. Please save my life. For those of us who have done that, we're able to become the children of God. We're brought into right relationship with Him, and, and He is our true Father, and, and we are able to be His true children, like we sang about a little while ago, Be Thou my vision, Thou my true Father, I Thy true Son. That's only possible through Jesus. And when that happens, we need to then start to be like our Father. I mean, what, what child doesn't, especially the little boy, what little boy, what little child doesn't want to be like their father? I mean, everybody wants to do that, especially when they're young, when they think that their dad is the strongest, smartest person in the world. That doesn't last very long, does it? But especially early on, they want to do everything exactly like dad. They want to look like dad. They want to dress like dad. They want to talk like dad. Dads, keep that in mind. A lot of responsibility there, right? But they want, they want to be just like dad, like father, like son. And it's not just the little boys. I mean, it, it jumps over even into the, the little girls. I mean, children, they just they want to be like their parents and, and in, a, in a very specific way, like their father. And that needs to be true of us, Christians. Those of us who have come to the Father and have been made His children through His Son, Jesus, we need to be a lot like our Father. And so, like Father, like child means that since our Father passionately hates sin, and we know He does, then we too need to follow suit and do the same. What I mean is, as God's children, we need to pursue holiness with passion instead of sinful passions. That's what needs to mark our lives. Because our Father hates sin with a passion, we need to hate sin with a passion, rather than just fulfilling those sinful passions in in our lives. We need to reject it, and we need to pursue holiness with an even greater passion than we used to pursue sin. That needs to mark our lives. That need, that's how we are, are going to be like our Father. We need, to, we need to follow His pattern of hating sin and desiring holiness, and that needs to be true of us as well. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 challenges us in that way. 1 Peter 1, 14-16, verse 14 says this, As obedient children, which we are made through Christ, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former 
ignorance. That's our sinful nature, our human carnal state before Christ. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance or your sinful nature, but, verse 15, but as He who called you is holy, that's speaking of God the Father, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So our, our God, um, He is the great author of creation. He's the great sovereign over it all. He has a desire to see us restored to Him and be, be made His children. To repair and restore what was broken by Adam and Eve's fall. So much so that He was willing to send Jesus to make it happen. But we've got to keep in mind how much He hates sin and what it means that He is holy. He is completely other in every way from us. And as He is holy and righteous and completely separate from sin in all forms, we need to do the same. We need to follow in that pattern. Like Father, like child. And the good news is, that even though the Father hates sin that much, and even though He is that holy, and that, that far removed from us in every way, I mean, so high and exalted above us, so much superior than we could ever be, it doesn't mean that He is somehow standing off from us. You know, it doesn't mean He might love us, but oh, He really doesn't like us that much. That's not true at all. The Father, here's the other thing I want to point out to you, what we need to know. The Father is perfect. He absolutely is. The Father is perfect. Yet, here's the amazing thing. Despite His perfection, the Father is perfect, yet He responds to our imperfection with compassion. That's how great and amazing our God is. He is perfect. He is so far above us we can't fathom, yet He still comes near to us. He draws near to us. And He responds to our imperfection, not with hostility and harshness and judgment, but with compassion. Here's what Psalm 103 tells us. Psalm 103, verses 8-14. through 14. This is just fantastic. This is such good news. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. Isn't that good news? He will not always accuse us. He will not always be angry. Verse 10 says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. That's mercy, church. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is compassionate. Verse 11 continues, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His faithful love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that was done ultimately by his son's cross. As Jesus was stretched out, arms completely stretched out on the cross, that's what enabled the Father to remove our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Verse 13 tells us, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. Hallelujah. Don't don't ever project your experience with an imperfect earthly father onto your perfect heavenly one. I I know that some of you have had really bad experiences with the word father. For you, the, the term father, it doesn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Rather, it it makes you feel bitter and angry, and with good reason, some of you. But no matter what you have experienced here on earth by way of a human fallen father, don't carry it over and project it onto your perfect heavenly one because he will always be a perfect father for you. No matter how much lack of compassion you were shown by some earthly father, you will never lack to receive and experience compassion from God the Father. The Father's justice, which He has, He's he's perfect in His justice, and He has to be. If He weren't perfectly just, He wouldn't be God. But the Father's justice and His mercy are always in perfect harmony. Always. They're, They're never going to be lopsided or in contradiction one to another, like, like is often with, in, in our case, you know, like what we do. Um, many times it's one or the other that we, we focus on. You know, we, we are all about justice to the exclusion of mercy, or we're all about mercy to the exclusion of justice. That's our tendency as humans. We, we tend to err on one side or the other. The Father is always perfectly harmonized in both. He's always perfectly just and perfectly merciful. I mean, the Father hates sin. We've established that. But He is merciful to the sinner. And isn't that good to know and remember? And it's, it's through the person and the work of His Son Jesus that He is able to be merciful to the sinner. So I just want you to make sure to get that down and to understand that that's so important. We, we risk looking at Him the wrong way when we fail to understand that He is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time and always will be. And still on this concept of just how compassionate and merciful and gracious the Father is, here's the other thing that I, I, just, I just love keep constantly coming back to and remembering because I need that for my, for my own soul. I need to remember this aspect of who God the Father is and what He does and what He's made true and possible. And, and you need this too. So, so here it is. Here's another beautiful truth and aspect of God the Father. The Father takes rebels and slaves and adopts them as His own sons and daughters. <laughs> That's what God the Father does. 
He takes rebels and slaves, which we all are. We're born into that. And we choose that willingly. But He, in mercy and in grace and in compassion, takes those rebels and slaves and He he adopts them as His own sons and daughters. Here's what Galatians 4, 4-7 through tells us about that. Verse 4, Galatians 4, says this, When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we, rebels and slaves to sin, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that means Daddy or Papa. That's how intimate and how close of a relationship the Father wants with us and brings us into. And here's the other thing. Don't don't you see the Trinity at work there? I mean, it's right there. It's on display. God the Father, when the time came to completion in His perfect plan and purpose... In His sovereign will, He sent His Son, Jesus, and through His work on the cross, made possible to receive salvation. And, and through the Holy Spirit, look what he, what he does. He, he sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts to indwell us to apply that adoption. So there's the Trinity on display right there. Verse 7 says this, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. An heir. An heir of all of eternity. An heir of the glories of heaven. An heir of freedom. An heir of forgiveness. An heir of endless eternal love. And a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Don't miss this miracle. Don't miss this miracle. The the miracle that is your salvation. The miracle of adoption. We were all born into rebellion against God and as helpless slaves to sin, but we've been given, all of us have been given the opportunity to be adopted by God. And here's the thing. The Father didn't just give us the gift of Jesus. I mean, that, that in itself is just incredible, that He would give us the gift of His Son. But He didn't just do that. The Father didn't just give the gift of Jesus. He gave us the faith required to receive the salvation and adoption that Jesus provides. We only come to salvation. We only receive adoption by faith. And we needed help with that. We couldn't even do that on our own. So He gave us the gift of Jesus to bring us salvation and adoption. Then He gave us the gift of faith necessary to receive that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 shows us how true that is. Here's what Paul says there. For you are saved by grace, something that you did not deserve, you get. For you are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the conduit that gives us that salvation. You are saved by grace through faith. And here's the really important part. Do not miss this. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. 
that points back to the faith that you needed to receive the salvation God provides. You couldn't save yourself, you know that, but nor, believer, could you generate the faith necessary to receive that salvation. Had to be God all the way. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And that is why, believer, your security about your salvation, your confidence in your salvation, your standing before God, your being loved by Him forever and liked too, <laughs> all of that rests completely on the work of God from start to finish. The only thing you and I contribute to our salvation was our need for it. That's it. God gave us the Son to save us and to bring us into His family by adoption. And He gave us the very faith to accept and receive that gift. That's why your salvation never depends on you. And it's never about some magical prayer that you say. It's all about complete confidence and trust and rest in the God who did it all for you. Truly. Truly. Everybody look at me. Everybody. Truly, He is a good, good Father. And you will never, ever know a Father better. Let's pray. Father, wow, what a privilege that we can even address you that way. You who are mighty beyond comprehension. You who are far more powerful than we could ever comprehend. You created all the universe with just your word, through the word of your Son, who is the eternal word. You willed and purposed and brought about creation. You, you sovereignly rule over it and direct every part of it. You are holy beyond our ability to understand the depths of your holiness. Your hatred for sin is passionate and unending. And yet, when you, when you look at us, the sinner... Through your Son, Jesus, because of His work on our behalf, you don't see us according to our sin. You see us as loved and as covered in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, and as your very own children, fully adopted by you. And I thank you that your love for us as your children will never change. It will never fade away. It will never fall. Thank You for Your compassion. Thank You that as high as the heavens are above the earth, something we can't ever measure, immeasurable, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is Your mercy for those who fear You, for, for those who are Yours. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has heard this first message of this series, who've, who've listened to these attributes and characteristics of you and things that are true about you, but they don't know you at this point, I pray that they would come to know you even now before they leave this building, that they would say, yes, God, I need, 
I need you as my father, and I know I can't have you as my father until I receive your son. Because that's the the fact of the matter, God. We can't come to you and know you as anything but judge unless we receive the gift of salvation through your son. And so I pray that if that's true of anyone here, that they would surrender their whole person to you through your son Jesus so that they can now know you as this father. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for all that you've made true of us with our adoption. Help us to go out and live in light of this, I pray. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.